Uh, let's pray to ask God's help as we open up his word this morning. Lord and Heavenly Father, Lord, be with me this morning and help me. Lord, let me uh, speak your words faithfully, Lord. Uh, I pray, Lord, that any falsehood from my lips would fall away, but that your everlasting truth would prevail. Lord, help us to hear from you. Help us to see how you love us and, and care for us and how you have rescued us. Work in us and show us how we should live as your people. Amen. Learning to love someone, well, can be a tricky exercise. If you're married or you have parents or family or a job that requires you to interact with your colleagues, you probably know what I mean. Think of a time, maybe when you were first married, the adjustment of living with another person and learning about them and their quirks and well, maybe their parents. Or having another child and, and realising just how different this, this little person is to their, their elder siblings and how to care for their specific child's needs. Or in another way, having a new job and getting to know your colleagues and your boss, getting to know what makes them tick and their expectations and how to have a happy and productive workplace. Learning to love can be tricky. The people of Israel are in a similar situation. Israel is here on the edge of the promised land. Remember, God has rescued them from Egypt. They've been wandering around in the desert for 40 years and now in Deuteronomy, they're standing on the edge of the promised land and they're about to go in and receive everything that the Lord has promised them. Before they go in, Moses sits them down to remind them of what the Lord has done for them, to call them to listen to the Lord and to obey all he has commanded, to live as his people in relationship with him. This is the good life, loving life with the living God in the land that he has given them. A life that is good because life in relationship with God, the one who is the source of all good. And you could boil this whole passage down to loving the Lord well. That's what we see here in Deuteronomy 6 to 8. In response to God's saving grace, God's people are to love him with a wholehearted, all of life love. But thankfully, Moses doesn't leave them guessing as to what this actually looks like. They don't have to figure out by trial and error. Through Moses, the Lord tells them how to love him, how to live in relationship with him. He tells them what this wholehearted love should look like. And this description of wholehearted love isn't just relevant for Israel, sitting on the edge of the promised land, because this is our response to God too. We need to hear the command to love your God. Love the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 and 5 are some of the most famous words in the Bible. Even today they are recited daily among many Jews as a central part of their faith. They are important. You can tell they are important because Moses starts by saying, Listen up. Pay attention. These next words you hear are very important. It's fitting that these words begin with a command to hear. 
Remember, the Lord revealed himself to them on the mountain, not by being seen, but by speaking. He is not God who is not seen, but is heard. All creation was made at the word of God. The word of God has power. The word of God is important. And so the people better listen up because the God is revealing who he is in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This seems pretty cryptic and it's actually quite difficult to translate. You'll notice your Bible probably has a few alternatives down in the footnotes. But Moses is reminding the people of the Lord's character. First, he calls the Lord our God. The Lord is the one who rescued them out of Egypt. He has made promises to them. He came and made a covenant with them, committing himself to a formal relationship with them. And they are his people, and he is their God. They have relationship with him. And he is one. This is so brief, it's a little hard to figure out exactly what he's saying. It could be that the Lord alone is God, that he is completely and utterly unique. And that would make sense then of why we are to have no other gods, because the Lord is God alone. But it might also be saying that God is completely unified within himself. We call someone who is two-faced or a hypocrite when they say one thing and do something else. They are duplicitous, like there is more than one version of them. In the ancient world, they worshipped gods like this. In one place, they would worship this god aspect of a god, and then in another place, they would worship the same god, but another aspect of him. But the Lord is not like this. He is always consistent, always faithful to his word, always true to what he says. He is one God, not to be worshipped in different aspects, but to be worshipped as one God, with one integrity, one God that his people can truly know. If the Lord is God alone, and he always acts with integrity and consistency, then their response to him should be wholehearted and consistent, a wholehearted, all-of-life love. Verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is the fundamental response to the God who has loved his people and rescued them from slavery and covenanted himself to them. They are to love him. But this isn't just a kind of touchy-feely kind of love. In the early 60s, DC Talk had a song called Love is a Verb. It's worth a listen to if you're not familiar with it. But this love here, this love is a verb too. This kind of love that this verse is talking about is not merely a, a feeling or an emotion. Feelings come and go. This love is a commitment to faithfulness displayed in action. A willingness and decision to be loyal to the Lord, to keep his covenant to live in relationship with him, to live as his people. This love may include feelings and emotions. In fact, given all that the Lord has done for his people, it should. But it isn't mainly about feeling. It's about commitment. 
And this commitment to living in relationship with the Lord will encompass every part of their lives. They are to love the Lord with all their heart, their soul and might. This is a love that begins deep down in the centre of who they are and flows out of every part of their lives. Let me show you what I mean. First, they are to love the Lord with all of their heart. When the Bible uses the word heart, it's not mainly talking about the emotional part of us. That's how we in, in the modern world usually use the word. But in the ancient world, they considered the guts, the intestines and the bowels to be the centre of emotion. But the heart was associated with the mind and the will, not the brain. Desires and decisions, that is what comes from the heart. Moses isn't talking about touchy-feely, fluttery hearts. He's talking about the willing, choosing, desiring, very centre of who we are. It's us, deep down at the core. The things we love, the things we choose, what we think and how we act. That all comes from our hearts and it flows from every part of our lives. That's why the Bible talks about guarding your heart carefully. That's why Jesus says that sin doesn't come from outside of us, but from our hearts. God's people are to love God with all their heart. That is, all of their desires, their decisions, their loves are to be directed to and shaped by the Lord. Love for the Lord should be the defining feature of their lives. All their thoughts and loves and decisions are to be defined by their love for the Lord and commitment to him. But that's not the whole picture. Second, they are to love the Lord with their soul. The word means life or breath and includes all of life and personality, everything that is in you. It includes the concept of the heart, but it is bigger and broader. All of our words, our character, our personalities, all of it is to be shaped and driven by our love for the Lord. Third, they are to love the Lord with all of their might. And this is even broader again. It talks about all of the resources that are available to us. It includes our abilities, our skills, our time, our money, our homes, our energy and our effort, even our physical strength. All of these resources are at our disposal and we are to use all of them in love for the Lord. Notice this includes the heart and the soul, but it's broader again. It is absolutely everything in our power. You see, love for the Lord is not just some private internal thing that happens in our hearts and our minds. It's meant to flow out. This love is a verb. It flows out into everything we say and think and do, how we use our money and our time and our resources. It begins in our heart and flows out as we use everything that we are and that is at our disposal to love the Lord. And that's the kind of response that is fitting for God. This isn't a command that we need to do before God would love us or rescue us. This is a command to a people already loved, already rescued. This is what it looks like to live in relationship with him as his saved people, in response to God's saving grace. 
We are to love him with a wholehearted, all-of-life love. And this isn't just for the Israelites. This is our response to the gospel too. Remember, the Lord of Deuteronomy is our Lord too. Our God is one God. And we have even more evidence of his integrity, his consistency, his faithfulness. We have seen that in his faithfulness and grace, he has even given us his own son for us. Wholehearted, all of life love for God is our right response to the Lord too. This love should shape the way we think, we feel, what we love, the way we act, the way we spend our time and money. No part of our lives is above repentance and change in love for the Lord. This is what it looks like to live in relationship with the God who has saved us. Now, we fall short of this all the time. We have all chosen this week and probably even this morning to love other things other than God. We have put our hope in things that cannot save. We have disobeyed his commands in our thoughts, in our words and in our deeds. We have neglected to do the good things we ought to do rather than love God. We have said no to God and lived our own way. But Jesus is the one who loves God perfectly. Even willingly dying on the cross to love his Father and do his will to the end. He has been faithful where we have been unfaithful. He has responded to God properly where we have not. Through faith in Jesus, we find forgiveness for our failure to love God wholeheartedly. We find his righteousness counted to us so that we can come to God with confidence as his sons and daughters to grow in love for him. We find his provision as he gives us his Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out, to change our hearts and to love God and to live for him. We can only do this with God's help, but thankfully, in Jesus, we find all we need for forgiveness to grow and love for our God. Moses doesn't leave us guessing about what this love actually looks like in practice. In fact, you could say that the whole book of Deuteronomy is showing us what this wholehearted love looks like as God's people are living in the land. But here in chapters 6 to 8, we see three things we're going to go through pretty quickly. The first is to love the Lord your God by remembering and obeying his commands. By remembering and obeying his commands. This wholehearted, all-of-life love will mean that God's words and commands shape their whole lives, from their hearts flowing out into every part of their lives. Verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as a frontlet between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God's word are meant to be everywhere in their lives. They're meant to be stored up in their hearts to shape their everyday conversation. Parents are to talk about God with their kids throughout the day, whether they are out and about or home and alone, 
whether they are lying down and going to bed or getting up in the in the morning. They are even to put God's word on their bodies and write them in their homes. It's not clear whether this last one is a, a metaphor for having God's words in every part of their lives, but some Jews still do this today. They put God's word in little boxes called tefillin and tie them on their foreheads. Either way, God's word is meant to shape their whole lives. This is important because when they get into the land, things are going to go well for them. This is a good land God is giving them as a gift. He is blessing them. In the midst of everything going well, it would be easy for their hearts to be turned away from the Lord, for them to forget that he is the one who rescued them from slavery and brought them here. It would be easy for them to turn away from the Lord and worship other gods. And so they must keep God's commands central to every part of their lives, including teaching their kids. And when their children ask about these commands, they are to remind them of the Exodus, how God rescued people from slavery in Egypt so they can live as his people in his land. That's why they've been given these commands. Verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. These commands are for their good. They show the people what it looks like to love God. They point them to the good life in relationship with the Lord. They need to remember God's commands and to do them. Again, this points us to what it looks like for us to live in relationship with God. Loving God looks like remembering his word, allowing his word to shape every part of our lives. It should be in our hearts. It should shape our conversations. We should be passing it on and teaching it to our kids. We need to keep coming back to it always, to keep remembering all that God has done for us in Jesus to keep reminding, being reminded of what it looks like to love him. We need God's word to shape us. It's a treasure. Don't neglect it. Which brings us to the second way God's people are to love God wholeheartedly. By taking holiness seriously. By taking holiness seriously. And that's what we see in chapter 7. At first, these words are a great shock. God tells the people what they are to do when they get into the land. They are to wage war against the people who live there. Verse 2. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would quickly, he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. God commands his people to devote the people of the land to complete destruction, to show no mercy, to kill the people, the animals, the livestock, to destroy their altars and pillars and idols completely, 
to purge the land. God commands them to kill all the people in the land before them. We can't back away from how difficult this is. This is very challenging. Many people see this as genocide or war crimes. Is God just glorifying in violence? Some try to soften God's words and claim that this is hyperbole. God didn't really mean to kill all of them, not the women and the children. While others have used this as permission to commit terrible atrocities. Maybe you've heard that argument that the God of the Old Testament is an angry God, a God of wrath. But in the New Testament, he learns to chill out a bit and now he's all about peace and love. Sometimes you'll hear that argument, or maybe you believe it yourself. But as we saw earlier, the Lord is one. He doesn't change. We read throughout the Old Testament of his grace. And the New Testament speaks repeatedly of God's judgment, especially in Revelation. The Lord is one. He doesn't change. But these verses actually show us what it looks like to live in wholehearted love for God. I want to suggest that there are four things that we need to see to understand these challenging verses. This won't answer all the questions, but it should help. First, we need to see that God is judge. This is not arbitrary. God is not giving the Israelites justification to wipe out these people because they are inherently better, or that the people are inconveniently living in the land. This isn't about race or ethnicity. This is God acting in judgment. Listen to what he says a little later in chapter 9. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. God is acting as judge. He is the one who made the whole world. He created everything. He sets the rules for what is good and right and what is wrong. He has the right to judge. In fact, it's right and good for him to act as judge. We get riled up when we see the courts go light on punishing those who do wrong. And for good reason. It's unjust. And it would be unjust for God to ignore sin. He is the judge. We must not lose sight of this. Our, judge, our God is the judge of the whole world. He is not safe or tame, but he is good. He is a God to be feared. It is our privilege to come to him as children in Jesus. But that does not change the fact that he is the judge. Second, we need to see that sin is deadly serious. All sin is the eternal all sin against the eternal God deserves death. Sin is turning our backs on the one who gives life. It is rejecting him and acting in rebellion against him. All sin deserves death. The truth is that there are no real innocents. We have all sinned against God and deserve his judgment. And this is true for the people of Canaan too. They have sinned against God. They have worshipped other gods with all sorts of terrible practices, 
even sacrificing their own children to their gods. Death is the punishment their sin rightfully deserves. And Israel is the tool God uses in their judgment. This is a one-time deal, not something to be repeated. God uses Israel in judgment against the peoples living in Canaan. Like later, he will use other nations in judgment against Israel. But that doesn't let us off the hook. Our sin, just as much as the sin of the Canaanites, deserves death. This judgment of God against the Canaanites should show us just how horrific our sin is, how we deserve death. When Jesus goes to the cross, this is the punishment that he is taking on our behalf. He is suffering the death that we deserve so that we can be God's people, forgiven in Jesus. Our only hope is in Jesus, but in him, God gives us grace. Third, God was showing patience by delaying their punishment. Back in Genesis 15, God promises Abraham that he will give them this land. But not yet. Israel will be enslaved in another land for 400 years first. Why? In verse 16, he says that the sin of the Amorites, the people in this land, is not yet complete. God is patient and merciful with them. He restrains his judgment. How do they respond to God's patience? Not with repentance, but they use it as an opportunity for even more evil and wickedness. They worship their idols and they make human sacrifices and offer their child. They try and communicate with the dead. Their judgment is well deserved. And so is ours. God would be right to wipe us off the face of the earth the moment we sinned. It is only God's mercy that he waits patiently to give us a chance to repent. The fact that sinners walk the earth isn't a sign of God's weakness, but of his patience. Which brings us to the fourth thing that we need to see in this. God's people are to be holy. The word holy means separate. God is holy in that he is God, separate from his creation. And he is perfectly good, separate from all that is evil and sinful. God has rescued a people for himself and set them apart for his purposes. And God's people are to be holy too, separate from sin as God's people. Take a look in chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. God has rescued Israel from Egypt. Part of loving him wholeheartedly is to be a holy people, a people set apart from sin as God's chosen people, his treasured possession. As God's people, they reflect his character. He is holy, set apart from sin. So they are to be holy, set apart from sin. This holy life is actually the way that leads to real blessing. That's what God promises them. As they live as his holy people in the land, he will bless them. Life will go well for them. 
and they will enjoy all sorts of material blessings in the land he has given them. This is the good life, life in relationship with the living God. That means God's people are not to mess with sin. They don't flirt with it. They don't put up with the worship of the people who are in the land. They don't marry their children off and mix their families. They don't take up their practices. They don't hang on to their idols. That would lead them astray from living as God's holy people. Verse 25. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. This is about them living as God's holy people. Loving God means taking holiness seriously. It means not messing with sin. Even taking drastic measures to cut it off so that we can live faithfully as God's people. Is there a sin that you're nursing in your life? Something that you don't want to give up? A sin that you're flirting with? Maybe it's lust or a TV show that you know you just shouldn't watch but you enjoy it. An addiction that you struggle with and you don't want to change. Maybe you enjoy gossip and you don't want to give it up. Or gluttony, drunkenness, selfish or pride. Sin is deadly serious. It leads to death. It always promises much more than it can deliver. Don't flirt with it. This morning, take it to God in repentance. Ask for his forgiveness. Rejoice in the forgiveness that we have in him. Ask that he would help you turn away from sin and live for him. And confess it to another that you believe. Confess it to another believer that you trust. Ask for their help and turn away from sin. Sin is deadly serious. Don't mess with it. Instead, love God by taking holiness seriously. And lastly, we are to love God wholeheartedly by remembering all that he has done. By remembering all that he has done. We're only going to look at this for a moment. In chapter 8, Moses shows them that loving God means remembering all that he's done for his people. In the land, they are to remember his faithfulness to them in the wilderness. That even as they were under God's judgment, he was with them. He fed them and he provided for them. He humbled them and taught them so that they would fear him. This is all God's loving faithfulness to his people, like a father caring for his son. Not only that, they are to remember God's faithfulness to give them the good land. This isn't the dodgy land that no one wanted. This is the good stuff. A land of rivers and springs. Wheat, barley, vines, olive trees, honey. This is a land where they won't lack anything. Verse 10. And you shall eat and be full. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. It is not by their own hands that they will enjoy this good land. It is full of cities and houses that they didn't build, cisterns they didn't dig, and vineyards and groves that they didn't plant. 
God's people get to enjoy these good things that they didn't deserve or earn. But God provided for them out of his abundant love for his people. He's rescued his people out of slavery and gave them this land. But this land carries great danger. When things go well, it would be easy for them to turn away from God, to forget that all of this came from him, to think that they did it themselves and to turn away from the Lord and to stop loving him wholeheartedly. So they must keep remembering all that God has done. Just as they are to pass it down to their kids, they must remember it for themselves. All of this is God's faithfulness. And that is the case for us too. We need to keep remembering the gospel, to remember how he rescued us out of slavery to sin and into freedom with Christ. To keep remembering that all we have is a gift from God. It's through Jesus that we have forgiveness. Adoption and blessing as God's people living in relationship with God. None of this is the result of our actions. It is a gift from God. We must not lose sight of that. But always remember all that God has done for us. God has graciously saved his people. He has graciously saved us. Our only right response is wholehearted, all of life, love for him. Love him by remembering and obeying his commands, storing up his words in your heart and living them out of your lives. Love him by taking holiness seriously and not messing around with sin. Love him by remembering all that he has done for us in the Lord Jesus. He is a gracious and holy God, a God worth loving with all of our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us today. Lord, we thank you for rescuing us, for, for making us your people. Lord, help us to love you with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our might. Help us to remember to obey your commandments. Help us to pursue holiness. And help us to remember all that you have done for us. To love you in response to your great love for us. Amen.